Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hi everyone, this is Elise Parisian, producer Nate Dufort, and this is Eleanor Riley Condit, the head writer of Unspookable. We're here to ask you for a favour. If you've been enjoying the show... We ask that you please leave us a rating and a review in your podcast player of choice. These reviews help new audiences discover the show, and it sure would help us out a lot as we try to find a larger audience. As always, thanks for listening. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to part two of our Witches episode. A two-parter because there is so much to say. So much more than we could even fit into five parts, let alone two. While we acknowledge that we can't tell you everything there is to tell about witches, the same is true for any of the subjects we talk about on Unspookable. Every story, every idea has many sides and many perspectives. So before we get started, we'd like to take this opportunity to suggest that you do some of your own research. Ask an adult about the best way to look up topics that interest you. And remember, research doesn't have to mean studying. Watch movies, write poems, Draw pictures, make up games. Whenever you take the time to think about a subject in your own way, that's important work you're doing. And hopefully it's fun, too. Now, where we last left you, we were just about to get to the not-so-wonderful part of witch history. Witch trials. But don't worry, we'll cover some of the more awesome stuff, too. The imagery of classic witches, both good and bad. And we'll hear about some witches who are practicing today. I'm Elise Parisian. And this is Unspookable. I would describe a witch as someone that's really smart and someone that's caring, not like rude and like making an evil laugh like hee hee hee. Like, everyone always thinks that, and I know that, like, so many people do it, like, they, like, I even do it, and I, and I call myself a witch, like, a witch or a wizard sometimes, because you can be, like, really smart, or, like, you can, some, I feel like some people can be, like, very magical or, like, upbeat and outgoing. I've never really heard of a good witch, but I'm pretty sure... Because people always put the witches in movies and TV shows and books as the bad guys. And they might just like magic and want to be good at it. I think witches can both be good and bad. Because of I've seen stories and I've seen a story about a good witch. And even good witches... Even if they get angry, they will still, you would think they're going to do a bad thing, but they still do a good thing just to not do that. I think witches would look like 
either green or like a really light purpley colored skin and um well for cartoon witch um that would be their skin color then for a hat it would be a pointy like wizard hat and they just always hold a really not pretty looking broomstick and go zoom on it In the 1620s and 1630s, a religious group called the Puritans were arguing with the Church of England about how Christianity should be practiced. The Church of England was powerful and wanted to run things in a certain way, while the Puritans wanted to change things, like the way services were conducted and the way people who belonged to the church behaved in their everyday lives. When they couldn't change how things were in England, some Puritans left for other countries, and some moved to the North American continent, where Native Americans were being driven further and further west as Europeans claimed their land. Puritans established the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the northeastern part of what is now the United States. And in that colony, there was a town called Salem. Many of us know the name Salem today because from 1692 to 1693, Residents of Salem and surrounding areas were part of one of the most documented cases of witch hysteria in the world. More than 200 people were accused, 30 were found guilty, 20 were executed, and five others died in jail. So how did this frenzy start? Two girls, ages 9 and 11, who were part of the prominent Reverend Samuel Paris's family, began to have seizures and other fits running around uncontrollably, and complaining that they were being poked by pins and needles. Soon, other girls and young women were complaining of the same things, some saying they were possessed by the devil. Upon examination, a local doctor feared they were victims of witchcraft. The first three women accused were Tichiba, an enslaved woman historians think was originally from South America. Sarah Osborne, a woman who was going through some legal trouble, and Sarah Good, a woman experiencing homelessness. What do these women have in common? They were all viewed by their neighbors with suspicion, and maybe even hatred, before ideas about witchcraft in the town had even crossed anyone's mind. They were women, and they were different. On the fringes of a society that valued wealthy white men, who strictly followed the rules of Puritanism as the most important people in town. So they were accused first. Tichiba even confessed at a certain point, after three days of questioning. So is it possible that she was indeed casting evil spells on the girls who accused her? That's certainly what the people in power would have liked us to think. Among the dozens of arrests made, at least eight of them were children. At one point, a four-year-old girl named Dorothy was accused of witchcraft and held in jail for days for questioning and examination. For many people at this time, Puritanism as a religion was about the struggle between God and the devil. They believed the devil is always trying to trick humans, to lead them to do evil. But following God's teachings very strictly will keep humans on the right track. More importantly to the witch trials led by Puritans is the fact that the church was led by men, and people were taught that 
although the devil tries to tempt everyone, women are especially vulnerable and more likely to follow him into evil. They are prone to becoming witches, and for Puritans, there was no such thing as a good witch. Any witchcraft was the work of the devil. Does that make any sense to you? No matter if you have a particular religion you follow or not, aside from the conversation about God or the devil specifically, does it make any sense to you that a group of people would teach each other and their children for generations that women are more likely to do bad things because they are weak? And what does weak mean, anyway? That their bodies aren't strong? Or their brains? Or their hearts? I bet you know many people of many genders who have all different types of bodies, thoughts, and feelings. There are so many different people in the world, it may sometimes be a little confusing to try to understand who someone is and why they are different from you. But unfortunately, in the 1690s in Puritan New England, and often in many places in the world today, people in power label entire groups as bad and try to convince others that the ways that they are different makes it impossible for them to be good. This is the kind of thinking that leads to witch trials. This is the kind of thinking that separates families, detains immigrants and refugees. This is the kind of thinking that forces us to try to be people that we are not, just so we can be safe. It unfortunately makes sense that Puritans were steeped in these ideas. Even if they left because they wanted to practice their religion, the England they came from, and many other parts of Europe between the 1400s and the 1600s, was full of ideas about witchcraft and evil and trying to keep the devil at bay. Between 1580 and 1630, it is estimated that 50,000 people were executed for witchcraft. About 80% of them were women. So do we really think that everyone who was responsible for those people's deaths believed completely that they were casting evil spells? Or were those in power exerting that power to control other people, especially women? Have you ever heard the word patriarchy? Patriarchy can be defined as a system of society or government where men hold the power and women are excluded from power. Do we think that if Salem had been a matriarchy, a society where women had the power, that all those women would have died? Or that children would have been held in prison? It's impossible to tell. In this particular case, men used their power for destruction. Am I saying that all men or all male-led societies are bad? Absolutely not. As we talk about all the time on Unspookable, people are extremely complex. No one is just one thing, especially not because of their gender. Some people hear the word patriarchy and think you're just being negative towards men. But what if pointing out that we live in a patriarchy is about pointing out that we would like equality? That people besides the men who have historically been in power deserve equality? And as long as we're not practicing dark magic, we deserve to be able to be witches if we want. All right, let's take a breath, because a lot of these things are hard to think about, and that's okay, but also good to get the other side of the witch story. We'll have more for you right after this. My mom told me to look up the um, 
Salem witch trials. And they would accuse people of being witches for doing things that seemed like it was witchery. They would have trials. That's why it's called the Salem Witch Trials. And I'm pretty sure it's in Salem, Massachusetts. I I do have a story about witches. um, Because we went to Salem, where there were the witch trials. And we went to to the cemetery where they were the people that died. You didn't get to hear all perspectives. You only heard it from the people. You usually hear it from the people who did not get accused. They might have been looking for witches, and then they saw people doing things differently and tried to accuse them of doing it. And many people got accused of doing it, even if they didn't. In any witches in history... There would be witches that would create medicine, and somehow people just evolved to saying that they're weird. And like in the in the Salem witch trials, you can't just like what the saying is. You can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge people and say they're witches when you have no proof. You just see what's on the outside, not what's on the inside. What do you think of when you think of a witch? Like the most Halloween-y classic image you can think of. For me, the first things that come to mind are black cats, pointy hats, and magic wands. Let's take a look at each, shall we? Black cats have historically been associated with their witches as their familiars. A familiar or familiar spirit is a supernatural creature that can help with the practice of magic. Familiars could take any shape. They could appear as any animal or even a humanoid creature. In Europe, especially in the medieval and early modern periods, when people made the distinction between witches, bad magic, and cunning folk, good magic, witches were thought to have demons as familiars, while cunning folk might have fairies or woodland animals as helpers. It's hard to say when the black cat became so firmly associated with witches in the Western tradition, but in some places in Europe and the United States, laws were made to protect black cats, and special days at animal shelters were established to get them adopted because people were so suspicious of them as symbols of bad luck or even witchcraft. The pointy hat that many of us think of today, perhaps with an image of Professor McGonagall and Harry Potter, or the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, or even on a wizard like Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings. It's hard to get to the origin of this image as well. But there may be a reason that author L. Frank Baum chose to have the Wicked Witch have a pointy hat while Glinda the Good Witch had a crown and shiny dress. It seems that the pointy hat might have been associated with witchcraft around the time that we were talking about, with the different types of Christians in Europe trying to control everyone else's religion. In the 13th century, some Jewish people were forced to wear pointed hats to show that they were not Christian. There is also a theory that the hats were associated with alewives, women who brewed and sold beer, a job that many thought was inappropriate for women. The hat became a symbol of stepping outside of what the dominant culture thought was acceptable, thus associated with witches. Thankfully today, there are many examples of awesome characters and everyday people reclaiming the pointy hat. Even the Wicked Witch of the West has gotten a new life with the book and musical Wicked, 
which tells Elphaba's origin story, not showing her as only wicked. And let's not forget an important tool of witchcraft, and sometimes wizardry, the magic wand. In The Wizard of Oz, Glinda's wand is usually shown as bright, silvery, and capped with a star. The fairy godmother in Cinderella usually has a simple wooden wand, but the spells she can weave with it are very powerful. Perhaps the best recognized wands today might be those from Harry Potter. In the story, each witch or wizard selects a wand that they have a connection to, almost like the wands know their people. They are made with wood of various strengths and flexibilities, but have a magic element at their core, like a phoenix feather or dragon heartstring, and no two are alike, just like no two witches are alike. Some of the first mentions of a wand used for spells and storytelling are in the Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, originating around the 12th century BC. In the Odyssey, Circe, a witch we mentioned in the first part of this episode, used her wand to turn Odysseus's soldiers into pigs. If you think about it, there are many special uses for things that look like wands in everyday life. Rituals in government or religion sometimes have a staff or a scepter, and even something like an orchestra conductor's baton is a little like a wand. It's the significance that humans give these objects that make them a little bit magical, don't you think? We've got more to tell you about witchcraft right after this. My favorite witches are Hermione Granger and Luna Lovegood, and there's also wizards that are my favorite too, like Harry Potter and Ron and every and like all of those, and especially Dumbledore. <laughs> the witches I've heard of are the like witches and wizards from Harry Potter. Yes, he goes to Hogwarts and he learns a little bit like on casting spells and a little bit of how to be a witch, but he's not a witch. The I think there's three witches from Hocus Pocus and Glinda from Wizard of Oz and Elphaba from Wicked because I like, not that long ago, I just watched Wicked. I like the book, The Wizard of Oz. I'm definitely, the, I'm pretty sure it's in The Wizard of Oz, The Wicked Witch of the Upper West Side. I feel like uh, whenever I think about bad witches, I feel like, I kind of think of Macbeth. And, like, I feel like back then there were some bad witches and good witches. Like, I watched Macbeth and, uh, Um, I really liked it, and it was kind of hard to understand, but I feel like there could have been, like, or, like, someone that's, like, crazy or, like, or, like, someone that's, or, like, a cool witch. Do you remember back in part one of this episode when we talked about the word Wicca potentially being the origin of the word witch? Today, Wicca is a modern pagan religion, incorporating magic into people's everyday lives. People who are Wiccan often connect nature and natural processes into their worship, like the cycles of the sun and the moon. Some believe that magic is a law of nature, misunderstood by contemporary science. For many, the pentagram, or five-pointed star, 
represents the elements of matter. Air, fire, water, earth, and ether, or spirit. The pentagram is often used in rituals and spell castings. As with any religion, people can practice Wicca in their own way, and believe in the parts of it they want to. There's no right way to practice a religion, unless it's leading you to do harm to others. And that's what a lot of modern witches want us to know today. A belief in magic or spells, a reverence for nature, for the unseen or inexplicable, those things can be just as valuable and wonderful as any other religious practice. The word witch doesn't have to mean what it's traditionally meant, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Practicing traditional medicine in Native American and First Nation tribes, in many regions of the continent of Africa, and among Aboriginal Australians often has a spiritual element to it. Like the practice of Santeria, developed by the descendants of enslaved Africans in Cuba. The saints that many practitioners worship are aligned with Catholicism, but they also practice healing that celebrates the spiritual connection of the body, heart, and mind. Or the practices involved in voodoo, that are often referred to as black magic by those outside of the culture. As we talked about in the zombie episode, Many white people choose to focus on ideas that voodoo brought people back from the dead, rather than the fact that it was often used for healing. If you want to join a coven, or a regular meeting of witches, today you can find them all over the world. You can also find a huge community of witches online, as technology allows us to share videos of rituals and directions for spellcasting over email, social media, and apps. Two hours west of Chicago, a yearly gathering attracts as many as 1,000 pagans who cast spells for protection, for creativity, and for strength, among other things. For many women especially, the word witch has become a way to reclaim power that has been taken away by male-dominated societies. It is a source of confidence and a way to join a community Just like joining any church or sports team or club can be, we all need to feel like we belong and to feel connected to something bigger than ourselves. So why can't that involve a little magic? Thanks for listening to the season conclusion of Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condit. Produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen, with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Abrahat, Olivia, and Al. Unspookable will be back in the new year with an all-new season. But in the meantime, make sure you're subscribed and following us on social media so that you don't miss some special announcements and a couple surprises in our podcast feed. And as always, if you like the show, we would love it if you could share with a friend and leave us a rating and a review in your podcast player of choice. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com.
Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.